When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today, I have no idea what we're going to talk about. Cody, what are we doing today? I think we're just going to talk about the weather today, aren't we? How is the weather where you are? This is the worst. This has been the worst, my least favorite day of snow. Let, okay, let me let me walk you through something for any non-Minnesotan type. <laughs> we're really going to do this. We're really going to start I'm with a so Minnesota angry. weather forecast. I'm so angry, Ben. I need to talk about this. So it rained like all day yesterday. And then that rain, because the temperature dropped, turned into just five inches of snow. I'm not exaggerating. Five inches of snow. And you know what happens when like the wetness of rain mixes with the snow? It's like tossing flour like when you're cooking, it's like tossing flour into a liquid. So you get these heavy clumps. So it's just oh becomes impossible to shovel and snowblow. So I had a good fight with my snowblower this morning, and I'm very, very unhappy. Wow. Uh, it was windy here last night. Got into the 40s. That was a lot for us in California. Um, let's talk about some basketball. <laughs> now that we've really... We've done... We did a legitimate weather forecast to, to start the program. What do you what do you what do you think about Donovan Mitchell now that we've I think we're ready to have the discussion. I think this might be the topic that we foreshadowed more than anything. Like I think on the second time I was on here, you're like, we need to have that Donovan Mitchell co- conversation. And this is so it. so the Jazz had won nine out of ten games. Mitchell had averaged about thirty three points a game in his six games heading into New Orleans on Friday. And I watched a ton of that game. It was some bad shooting from the Jazz. It was some nice defense from New Orleans. They sprung Herb. I mean, you got Herb Jones. You could spring Herb Jones on anybody. And then they played great. They played really well. McCollum looked really good in that game. And before you knew it, it was one of those things where I don't watch the scoreboard or care about it when I play. And before you knew it, you looked at the scoreboard and it was like 60 to 30. And you're like, wait, wait, that doesn't even map up with what I'm seeing in this game. Anyway, that happened. They got blown out. And a ton of people were like, wow, that's really weird timing to make this video. And I'm thinking like, I've been making this video since December. Why do you think why do you think we keep foreshadowing? We're like, wow, we gotta wait to talk about Mitchell. Somebody on the Jazz gets hurt, somebody gets traded. They have had the best offense in the league the entire season. And I think because of where they play, who they are, this the state of Utah, a small market. Rudy Gobert being their best player for so long. I'm no longer convinced he's their best player, by the way. I, I, I think they get slept on heavily because a lot of people were surprised. Like, I think there was cognitive dissonance when people either saw the title or started listening to stuff happening in the video, and they were like, Utah stinks in the playoffs. It's like, well, one, that's kind of a tautological definition, circular, to say only the teams that make the finals and the conference finals are good in the playoffs. I mean, we talked about a couple weeks ago, the teams Utah was losing to and playing somewhat competitively were like the 2017 Golden State Warriors, the 2018 Houston Rockets. But what's more interesting to me and one of the reasons I ended up making this video and I've wanted to talk about this all year 
is the Utah Jazz offense in the last two seasons and their playoff offense going back to the bubble has been ridiculous. Like offensive ratings in the 120s. I think last year their final team offensive rating in the postseason was like 121 something according to the way basketball reference calculates possessions. And I mentioned it in the video with Mitchell, his offensive rating on the court in the last two postseasons is 125. There's maybe like a player or two for the Clippers, I think, that is over that. And some of that is because the Clippers played the Jazz in that series. But it hasn't been the Utah offense that's been the challenge in the postseason. It's been the Utah defense. Well, let's let's talk about that offense for a second. Let's, let, I want to ask you about the numbers. So w- when we think about the transition from regular season to postseason offenses, number one in general, what kinds of changes do you see between a regular season team's offense versus their playoff offense? And then number two, how does that map onto what you've been seeing from Utah's offense these last couple of seasons? What I look for in the structure of an offense or the diversity of the offense, the number of counters they have, what do you you mean? I mean, I think that could all feed into that, but how do they perform? Because you can see like strong regular season numbers and there's always a conversation like this is a strong regular season team. Yeah. But is there some kind of a change for most teams for like how well their offense looks or how good their offense looks in the regular season, uh, especially numbers wise versus what it might look like in the playoffs? Oh, I see. Yeah, I mean, I don't think for most teams there's some huge difference between the regular season and the postseason because if you succeed and create a point differential and and an advantage against opponents with your offense when you get to the playoffs typically you're still a good offensive team now maybe what you're asking about is are there teams like i don't know the 2009 10 Cavs or something where you're built around lebron and then the regular season it's fine to have mo williams J.J. Hickson, they brought in Antoine Jameson in the 2010 season. You know, does that stuff, Delonte West, does that work well in the postseason and and the regular season, and then you get to the playoffs and it doesn't work well in the postseason? I think there's plenty of examples like that. And to me, they have to do with counters. They have to do with someone someone says, okay, um, you've got LeBron, and we need to find a way to take away some of LeBron's advantages and then force other people to beat us or we'll let LeBron do what he's going to do and force other people to beat us. And I think that's where you can see a difference between a regular season and a postseason offense. When I see great success in postseason offenses, it's usually, oh, there's a lot, there's a lot of skill out there. Um, the way they create the advantages is to hard, hard to take away and if you take them away, they have other things they can go to. And I think that's what, what's compelling about Utah. Now, they don't have Ingles anymore. Ingles is probably aging out anyway. He's not the same player he was two seasons ago. But, you know, great shooter, good, good passer, good extra passer. He can run some of the actions they run. But Utah has a ton of shooting, multiple ball handlers out there at all times. They have a ton of weapons. And when you look at Mitchell specifically... This, to me, goes back to that idea of a physical advantage. Michael Jordan had it. Derek Rose has it. John Morant has it. It's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so compelled by what I see from John Morant. When we did the point guard rankings, I had him very high because of this specific thing. When you get in the playoffs, you can put the best defenders in the world in front of Donovan Mitchell, and he's still like 98% as effective on the things that he wants to do. And I think that's where... If, you, if your offense is built on the backbone of that player relying on it for success 
and that player can still get the things they want in the playoffs, they're probably going to have a pretty good playoff offense. And the the thing that's really interesting about Donovan Mitchell, I, th- this was a conversation I had back when I was on, on Sense and Scalability. We called it the wrong initiator, and we had this idea that maybe Donovan Mitchell is not the quote-unquote correct initiator for a strong offense, right? He's not the kind of guy that you can give the ball and be like, create like a high-level offense on your own. And the Utah Jazz is kind of the perfect ecosystem for somebody like that. I don't necessarily know if that is the case anymore. I want to have a conversation maybe about his passing and how that fits into that conversation, but... When you think about that team's construction, Utah basically has, I don't know, two or three, maybe three all-star level offensive players on the team, or at least sub-all-star level offensive players. And when you think about how they're all together, like Donovan Mitchell is able to attack so much space. Players can't help off defenders because there's so many shooters and creators. And with Donovan Mitchell's developing strength and athleticism and the way that he attacks, it... I. I completely agree with what you're saying. Like, I don't see how you can stop him when you have the ecosystem surrounding him that Utah has. Okay, here's the thing. Let's say I told you I can get you the best offense in the league by far. And in the postseason, you'll be dealing with offensive ratings around 120 or higher. I think most people would hear something like that and go, this is phenomenal. This is ideal. Any players I can put in that ecosystem to get me to that height, whether it's Steph Curry or LeBron James or just get me there, that's incredible. I think that's what you have with the Jazz. And what's fascinating to me is Mitchell Mitchell helps you get there without being the guy who runs 75 pick and rolls and all these heliocentric possessions, just spamming spread pick and roll or switch hunting or things like that. I think we've become too accustomed to heliocentrism. I think it's almost like we have helio brain. That's what it feels like. And we look at these guys, we look at these small guards, especially, and we say, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if he could, I don't know if he can compete with Trey Young because I, I can see Trey, Trey Young, I can just run 75 straight pick and roll possessions. And of course, he's fantastic at hitting all the reads. He can hit the corner, he can manipulate the help defender, et cetera, et cetera. And Mitchell is not at that level as a passer. But I mean, I, just as an aside, his his pick and roll efficiency is better than Trey Young's pick and roll efficiency. Now, some of that, of course, is because he's playing in this ecosystem in Utah. And if you swapped in Trey Young, the numbers would look different. But if you swapped in Trey Young, they would be running a different offense. And what I'm saying is, I think we are becoming a little too drunk on trying to evaluate these small guards by saying everything has to be in this cookie cutter 75 pick and rolls a game, spread pick and roll reads. And I want this guy to average 33 points, 16 assists, and seven turnovers every game. Versus Mitchell, what I saw on the tape and what I've seen over the season is he's got more movement than you would expect. He's got more catch and shoot than you would expect. He's, I love those plays that I include in the video where he just spaces wide, catches the change of side swing pass, and attacks like it's a closeout. Those are his skills quickness first step get in the paint kick out and he can do it within the quote-unquote flow of the offense while also being the guy who is the best pick and roll initiator both early in the clock and late in the clock and to your point no he can't pass like LeBron James or Luka Doncic or Trey Young or Magic Johnson or any of these players but I mean neither could Dwayne Wade 
And Dwayne Wade was a good passer, and Dwayne Wade could run pick and roll. But you could also use Dwayne Wade in other situations. He's a great cutter, you know, these handoff actions. I love the way the Jazz have these. That's why I highlighted the three-man kind of stuff that they run, because you can have multiple shooters and ball handlers in these actions with the big. They, they like to play Gobert or Whiteside, the single big and then have that guy be the primary screener. And he can go back and forth between these two. I'm going to flare. I'm going to run double screen. I'm going to run stagger. One guy's going to pop. One guy's going to roll. And if you swing it back to the other guy, let's say Mitchell sets the screen and you swing it back to him, then Gobert flies back out and you get a pick and roll out of that action with Mitchell and Gobert. He's good in all these things. He, we talked about it um, with the shooting. 44% on wide open shots. Like, like, who do you think most people think is a better shooter between Devin Booker and Donovan Mitchell? Oh, I think people, I would think it would be like 80-20 people would say Devin Booker. For Booker. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what I think. That's what I think. And if you look at the numbers, it cuts heavily the other way. Like, just pull up threes. Booker takes four pull-up threes, a little under four pull-up threes every 36 minutes over the last couple seasons, and he makes them at 32%. And Mitchell takes almost six pull-up threes, and he makes them almost 36%. And Booker's wide-open threes are like 40%, and Mitchell's are 44%. So it's just this impression of, you know, what are, what are the skills that the guy has that fits in the mold that I have about a small guard in my head versus touch passing, extra passing, movement shooting, quick really quick dynamic closeout attacks or just swinging and going playing in handoff action that's what i like about it and i think he's become i mean i'm 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 a believer i think he's one of the better offensive players now in the league i want to i want to rewind a little bit and go back to heliocentrism for a second because when you when you look at mitchell's load and box creation numbers over the last few years which is basically how much he's involved with the offense and how much he sets other teammates for shots starting in 2019 it starts increasing like from 2019 to 2020 to 2021 but then from 2021 to 22 those drop a little bit he actually has less of a load than last season he has less he's creating fewer shots for teammates in the last uh, last season he's scoring fewer points per 75 at this moment than he did last season his efficiency is up by a solid Almost three percentage points. That's the key. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. That is the key. And so I think it's really interesting. It looks like the Jazz realized that they hit this point where they're like, you know, if we're going to really take advantage of the skill set that Donovan Mitchell has, this 52 52 for his load, his offensive load, is probably about the peak for what is going to be good for him. So maybe we want to taper that back a little bit. So when we look at some of these numbers, I think my question to you, now that you've done this huge deep dive of Mitchell is someone might really quickly look over the stats and be like, Mitchell seems basically like the same players last year. What do you think, if anything, what do you think he is better at this season than he was last season, or at least even the last couple seasons? Yeah, I think he's progressively gotten better from rookie year to second year, probably to third. So if you go back to the bubble, all this has happened very quickly because it's it's still kind of surreal. But we're we're in March of 2022, and the bubble ended like... 16 months ago or so. I mean, so so this has all happened in that time period. And I think in the last two seasons, especially for me, what I've seen is one, somehow increased athleticism. Like his cuts are sharper. His movement is sharper. Two, to go along with that, his handle 
has clearly improved. I actually went back and in my old notes from the 2019 profile I did, um, fumbling was one of the, it's one of the little tags I use. If a guy gets a little loose on his moves, he's getting into the gap and people are getting their hands in a lot. He's making a spin move and he's losing it. He had more of those a couple seasons ago. His handle's tight now, Cody. It, it's, it's legit. It's ridiculous. And it pairs with that that movement. And then I think the shooting has continued to improve. When he came in initially, um, it wasn't that he was a poor shooter, but you had some questions, or at least I did, about the numbers that he started to put up on long twos and threes. And those numbers look beautiful in the last couple seasons. You add that together and then you get the passing. Because I do think he's improved steadily as a passer throughout his NBA career. And is he going to manipulate you out of pick and roll? No. But I think, well, I shouldn't say no, like he's just not going to do it at the same prevalence as these, as these great maestros. But I think with him, you can see nice feel on the extra passes, the dynamic passes, the touch passes. I have one that I included in the video that I liked a lot, which I thought was representative of this, where they're coming down in transition or like semi-transition, and he realizes he has Bogdanovich under the hoop with like a 60-foot chest pass. But before he throws it, he looks to the left like he's just going to casually that that kind of thing. And if you listen to him mic'd up in games, like when he talks to players, you know, I don't think he's Larry Bird out there, but he's he's just got he's a guy who's just got a feel for winning basketball. I think that's a little better than than he's given credit for. And I think that maps into his passing where it's like look at the way Utah likes to use those little three man actions where then at the end, Gobert can dive to the hoop. Mitchell Mitchell makes some gorgeous touch passes off those actions. Like, you got to understand in your head what's unfolding and what's happening and where the defense is, and you have to be a step ahead. And he can be at least a half a step, maybe a full step ahead. Ball comes to him, boom, you got a layup. That's beautiful basketball. And I really think we're, we just tend to index too much with these small guards on spread pick and roll. And I, I want to I see Ben. Ben, I want to see his offensive load at 70. Come on. Get it up to 70. Like, I want him doing everything. And the reality is, you don't, you don't need him, and maybe you don't want a lot of players actually playing like that to have a great offense. Especially when you have so many strong secondary and tertiary creators on the Jazz. Like, Mike Conley, you want the ball in his hands sometimes. Bojan Bogdanovich, you want the ball in his hands sometimes. Yep. Joe Ingles, when he was there, you want the ball in his hands. And a couple of points that I have about Mitchell. One thing that... that actually jumps off the page for me is that his uh, pull-up jump shooting this season, especially from three, has, is the best that he's had in his career. Uh, yep. His attempts per game has been going up, but his catch-and-shoot numbers are significantly down. He's never been below 40% on catch-and-shoot threes before this season. He's at a shade under 33%. And even with that dump-off, with shooting three and a half of his threes off that catch-and-shoot, he's still almost three percentage points more efficient. So I don't even think we're seeing, like, we're, we're dealing with shooting volatility. I don't know if we're seeing as efficient as we could see with Donovan Mitchell the second point yeah he he could have a little bit more on his on his efficiency still being at like 29 points per 75 volume scoring exactly which would just it would make him seem an even more impactful offensive player Uh, my second point for the thing that I think really stood out to me for his main improvement for this season and this is something I've seen with Jason Tatum I've seen it with Jokic I know there's another player I want to... Oh, Paul George is another one. And we were talking about it with Manu Ginobili before recording here. And it's this 
this explosiveness off unorthodox footsteps driving to the basket. And I think maybe 10 years ago, there was this fascination with like the very basic Euro step. Like you go boom, boom, like one to the right, one to the left and you finish. But Donovan Mitchell is so good at like, here's a super elongated stride that's like twice as long as one, but I'm going to follow it up with like this really choppy eighth of a step one. You even pointed out in the video, like his back foot is literally dragging on the floor on some of these. And he still has the strength and explosiveness to get up and finish around the trees. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. He, he's, he's a crazy athlete. He's one of these guys where I feel like if he played another sport, you would get an idea of his, his athleticism. Like if, you, if you'd had him try out for like a football team or something, you'd be like, whoa, that guy is off the charts as an athlete. Um, Driving-wise, the, the stuff you're talking about, I think this opens up a penetration game. And I was trying to figure this out. I wonder what you think of this. How many players in the world do you think at, are better at essentially breaking down defenses with quickness and ball handling? Not power. I'm not talking about like Giannis or LeBron or Jokic backing down. But getting those paint touches where you're crossing over, making one of these moves you're talking about, using quickness getting into the lane, and then applying that pressure on the rim to score or being able to kick out. So if we're combining actually finishing ability along with all of these things, it's a very short list. I think that the names that come to mind, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, John Morant, Trey Young. I, th- I, th- I think So I think Mitchell is definitely better than Shea at that. I think he's better than Trey at that. I mean, especially when you combine finishing ability. Uh, we were looking at some finishing ability stats before the show. Can you pull those up as I kind of talk through this? And uh, it's B-Ball Index that has a kind of finishing metric, I think, or maybe it's just a Z-score or something, trying trying to compare how far players are from the mean when you take into account drives, teammates spacing, team team context, uh, volume of drives, and efficiency finishing at the rim. And Man, I mean, to me, it's like Morant and Mitchell, and I'm, I actually struggle to get a third guy currently. I mean, if we like went back in time, we could do Derrick Rose, and maybe we can circle back because I have some thoughts on on how Derrick Rose fits into this. But I mean, Luca Luca has great numbers, and he's really good at it. But he does it in a totally different way. He'll back you down and be methodical and use his body. Whereas I think Trey's size is a problem, even after he makes that first move. Mitchell and Morant, those guys, I mean, if you're a seven-foot shot, if you're a great shot blocker, you can slow him down. But if he sees wings in there, if either of those guys see wings, they're just going to take it right to him. I think this is one of those where, like, this might be a skilled Ja Morant is in, like, a whole tier of his own. Like, his yeah, his yeah. ability to self-create, get to the basket, and finish is, it, it's unreal. Like, it doesn't his, make his, sense. The volume, like, the amount of pressure... I think in his video, I might use the word relentless or something. Like, he just constantly stress tests, stress tests defense and then go. Like, he's looking for the gap and then goes. And if there isn't a gap, he'll wait and keep his dribble alive and go. Mitchell doesn't quite have that level of activity and pressure. I don't know if he could. 
sustain that the way Jaw does. But part of my point I'm making is like, that's not the only way to run good offense. And especially when you're in an ecosystem that has different options to be able to still provide value, movement, handoffs, plug in, close out attacks, I mean, cuts, whatever it is. Like, I, I think that is something that's maybe becoming underrated. For the small guards specifically. I like that. I like that idea. And I, another shout out for a player that's having a down year on this, but I think has the ability is De'Aaron Fox. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, if you yep. look at years past, some, like again, he has this blinding speed, like one of the fastest players in the league getting to the rim. But the thing that John Morant doesn't have, De'Aaron Fox doesn't have, none of these guys have, is that pull-up jump shooting ability that, that Donovan Mitchell has. And I think he's more effective working off ball and getting involved with the offense. And I think all of those things together... I don't know if this is a hot take. Does that make him a better offensive player than, than say, John Morant this year? Is he... I, I don't know. Ooh, I, well, I think I do love the fact that he has the inside-outside combo. And he definitely has that over Jaw. Jaw, on the other hand, um, has, you know, rim finishing and rim pressure over Donovan. And I think Jaw... This is a really interesting conversation that you asked about his passing. Jaw's passing on ball out of those pick and roll actions or things like that, I think is better. I think his lay down game, like in other words, taking all that pressure of collapsing the defense and then finding a big with a little drop off, dump off, wrap around, um, even maybe lobs. I think jaw is better at that, but you know, is Mitchell a better extra passer? Is he a better movement player? Can you play him in more systems? Is he, he's definitely a better shooter. It's really interesting. It's really interesting because both of those guys, especially Mitchell, feel like they have a gear. You put them in a playoff series, you play against an elite defense, you need stuff to happen in the fourth quarter when things are tight and people are tired and intensity's up and you got timeouts everywhere, so they're coming out of the timeout every two minutes and the defense is like, here's what we're doing, watch this action, watch this action. And that's where you need... Okay, it doesn't matter what you say in the timeout because no humans can stay in front of John Morant. It doesn't matter what you say in the timeout because Donovan Mitchell is going to make 40% of his pull-up threes from God knows where all over the court. And yeah, that's where I think those guys are fascinating when you size up best offensive players and best offensive wings and guards in the league. Maybe we should have that conversation at some point in the future. I think it sounds like a good one. And ju- Yeah, just that's com- a good teaser. Comparing their roles, I know John Morant, the Grizzlies do a good job of using John Morant off ball. Like, they don't just spam, like, high pick and rolls like someone would with Trey. Yep. But just watching them, it feels like Donovan Mitchell is a bit more involved movement-wise, maybe intensity-wise, when he is off-ball than Jaw. Not count, not calling out Jaw for that, but I just think Donovan Mitchell is a little bit better than that. But then on the passing side, that is something in uh, Mitchell's passing game that I feel like I didn't see as much. Like, he made those great uh, passes into the interior, especially off the secondary creation from the perimeter, but I didn't see a lot of those, like, drive in and then create a layup pass for somebody else, which is something that I feel like Jaw had. And I think, yeah, I think th- these driving yeah. skills that we're talking about, attacking the basket, I just think that's so tough to scheme for when you're a defense. Because then you have to worry about, all right, we have these shooters, but we also know that Jaw and Mitchell are going to be coming at us, and they're going to get to the basket. What are we going to do? And then that's, that's just another uh, thing that they have to strategize for. I, I should point out that um, as great as Utah's shooting is around Donovan... Morant's shooting in Memphis leaves a lot to be desired. He's got Desmond Bain, but the rest of the team has not been a great shooting team. One thing they do do well is the offensive rebound. And some of that is just personnel with someone like Steven Adams. But I think some of it is, 
a guy like Morant just chopping the defense in half and then putting them in rotation. And so it's like, yeah, we, we kicked it out. Both Ja and Donovan stand out to me right now as almost preternatural kickout guys with their athleticism because what they're doing is they're taking it an extra dribble, an extra step to the rim, to the big men, getting up in the air, and then knowing exactly where their bailout is, in the corner, to the top, whatever. And so they can push you super hard to the breaking point and then audible and go, hmm. I'll just take the open three with my teammate. And when you and when you kick it out to Bogdanovich, it's going down most of the time. When you kick it out to, I don't know, Zaire Williams and Jaron Jackson and Kyle Anderson, um, you know, even DeAnthony Melton, like maybe it's 35% or whatever it is, but you can still get offensive rebounds off those actions. Heck, Jaw's athletic enough that he can do it himself. Looking at, you had some uh, cool stat in here, unassisted rim field goal attempts every 75 possessions. I love that we have that, by the way. Yeah. Again, huge shout out to Basketball Index that just, they have such a strong, like a huge bevy of statistics like this sort of thing. So that's that's where we're getting a lot of this information. And looking at these unassisted rim field goal attempts per 75, like, again, John Morant is in a league of his own. He's taking 7.3. This is out of every every guard in the NBA. I don't remember. There's like 89 of them that's played at least 1,000 minutes. He's the only player that's above 7 per 75 possessions he's the only player he's the uh one of two players above six and it might yeah. shock some of you to find out that russell westbrook is number two but uh his his finishing his finishing leaves a bit to be desired and then uh donovan it leaves mitchell, a lot to, leaves a lot to be desired just a yeah. little bit donovan mitchell yeah, what, is down to about eight with uh he's averaging about 4.3 unassisted rim field goals so there's like a three attempt gap between those two yeah and um a couple other names in there Anthony Edwards, who's a much bigger body and obviously an absurd athlete, he's up there at over five. Here's a surprising one for me. Malcolm Brogdon, also over five. That, that, I don't know if that caught you off guard. I did not expect to see Brogdon with that level of rim volume. It didn't catch me off guard because I always saw that when he played for Milwaukee, and that's why I was so sad when he left. It's because they kind of had this really quick guard that could get to the, to the rim and kind of spread out for Bud Ball. Right, but to, but to put this volume in perspective... Westbrook is finishing at 56% on his rim field goals this year, and Mitchell is at 65% on his rim field goals. And hold up, Cody, are you sitting down? Buckle up. John Morant, despite the absurd volume, 7.3 self-generated rim field goals every 75 possessions. And overall, it's almost nine rim field goal attempts every uh, every 75 possessions. He's shooting 67% at the rim. That's... That's what you said for Donovan Mitchell, isn't it? No, he's 65. Six, Mitchell's he's 65. better than Donovan yeah. Mitchell. Yeah, he's even better. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it doesn't even <laughs> so, make sense. It doesn't even make well, sense. And th- this is where it gets interesting to me because I think this in many ways is the weakness of someone like Trey Young. I don't even know if it's fair to use the word weak here, but when you stack him up against some of these guards with this... Uh, athleticism and ability to kind of play bigger than they are, especially when it comes to high-value real estate around the basket. Young is someone who actually isn't that good at rim finishing. He's 58% on about four unassisted attempts every 75 possessions. And so does that take away a dimension or mean, you know, because he doesn't have two or three levels of the court to kill you at that when you get in a playoff series, maybe certain defenders or defensive approaches could take that away. Whereas again, it feels to me right now, like if I'm on a, if I'm in a playoff series and I don't know anything else, 
I'm going to be betting on Ja and Mitchell to continue to find ways to have success for their team. It, it this feels like a take that like one of the TNT guys would have. So I'm going to try it. I'm going to try and make it more nuanced here. But I feel like if I'm in like the playoffs or that kind of situation, I want an offensive player whose game is predicated more on getting to the rim and opening up shots for other players as opposed to a player that's predicated on like opening up a longer shot for themselves. Does that make sense? I think that's I think that's true in the regular season too though. I think I think if you're saying do I go outside in or inside out? I think you're probably going to get more mileage, more more resiliency in the long run from inside out because that ability to collapse the paint just puts defenses in such a compromised position. And usually it's some physical advantage that gets you there versus just your sh- just pure shooting skill or movement or uh, screening action, off-ball sets, X's and O's, things like that. So Morant, um, you mentioned Shea, Westbrook when he was younger had this, Mitchell has it now, Anthony Edwards might get it. You just have these physical advantages that nobody can stay in front of you. That's something that's going to be relatively consistent, I think, against most defenses. Now, defenses can build a wall. They can sag in if you don't have the right spacing. We've seen this for a long time, for at least a decade in the NBA, maybe multiple decades, depending on how you think about this stuff. And that's where having a great pull-up jumper becomes such a big deal. Yeah. Yep, and that's the counter that that Mitchell has right now that I, I don't quite trust John Morant with. Looking at the stats, I think there's one player I want to shout out Actually, I this really is catching me off guard. Cade Cunningham being number 10 on this list for unassisted field goal attempts per 75. That's for somebody that really doesn't quite have the burst to some of these other players. Um, I find that impressive. I think that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's young, but he's big, you know, slightly different um, physical build. Luke, Luca doesn't have the volume, but he's got great finishing again because of that size, because of the way he does this. So, okay. So we stack all this up, right? And if you look at something like Second Spectrum, the way they chop up um, drive efficiency and pick and roll efficiency and things like that, they have this thing called you know direct. I think it's when the play directly ends from the action. And so if you look at drives, John Morant, 18 direct drives per game. And Memphis on those possessions, that's <laughs> a lot, that's a lot. Memphis on those possessions scores with an offensive efficiency of 105.6, okay? Trey Young, 15 direct drives per game. And the Hawks on those possessions scored an offensive efficiency of 104.1. Where do you think Mitchell lands? Oh, I mean, when we're thinking about both Morant and Trey, probably at least in that ballpark, like in that 105 range. Okay, so Mitchell is slightly lower, again, lower on the volume because he's not handling quite as much, I don't think. But he's just under 13 drives per game, and his drives end up with an average offensive efficiency of 110.5. Wow. This, okay, yeah. and when you say direct, like that means that drives that Mitchell had that directly ended the possession, like either from a shot or... Shot or, a, I think, a pass chain. Okay. So he, he drives, they kick it around, they get a shot. Wow. Um, Hockey assists, I believe, are included in that. Let's do, let's do pick and roll efficiency. It's the same thing. Pick and roll efficiency. Morant runs 21 direct pick and rolls a game. 99.2 is Memphis's offensive rating on those sets. Trey Young, more of a pick and roll maestro. They run 28 per game in Atlanta. 
offensive rating is just under 107. Uh, Mitchell, 19 pick and rolls a game. Utah's offensive rating on those is 109. So again, the ecosystem matters. These, these guys spacing around him matter. But I, I think, again, I'm, I'm really hitting on a theme here in real time, just off the top of my head. We do a disservice when we say, like, it's got to be, it's got to fit in this heliocentric pick and roll model. And it's like, no, you can be really good at running the pick and roll in your own way. You can be good at selecting and targeting and picking out your isolations and your driving game, whatever you want to call that, attacking closeouts, whatever, switches or whatever. Like, your driving game can be effective. You can put all those things together with your spot up shooting, with your movement shooting. And to your point, it will be interesting to see if at this point in time where guards have had a really hard time generating high efficiency, we didn't mention that there aren't many guards above like plus 3% efficiency relative to the league this season. Um, so what does that get you under? Let's say 60%, 60% kind of becomes like a gold standard. It'll be interesting to see if Mitchell can have a full season, if he's shooting a little better on those catch and shoot threes at around 60%, because frankly, at this point, Cody, I think that would just be, phenomenal for a small guard and this brings us back to the conversation about how often he's creating like the fact that the jazz brought back his his creation a little bit and instead they just get this much more efficient offense because of it and this makes me think back to your i think you have a a chapter in your book your thinking basketball book about wilt chamberlain i think you call it like global offensive impact or something like that where it's like well look at wilt like he's so efficient when he shoots why shouldn't he shoot every possession but like this is the situation. Maybe you scale back some of that shooting. You get more better shots for other people to create, but you also get better shots and more efficient shots for yourself to create. And that's where my mind goes right away when I see these numbers. And Luca, 30 pick and rolls a game, 100 offensive rating. Like, yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pick and rolls. Yeah. Um, but Luca is killing people in the other areas, which is so fascinating because he gets these mismatches, he gets switches, he gets the right defender on him, he backs him down, he's methodical. And his ISO numbers are off the charts right now, Cody. According to the same second spectrum sort of categorizations, almost 10 ISOs a game at 111 offensive rating. That's not, Just to put that in comparison, Devin Booker has about five ISOs a game and the Suns offensive rating on those plays is 89. 111, that's, that's madness. Off a really high volume, too. Like, double yeah, basically yeah. everyone else besides Trey Young here. Yeah, and his drives, we mentioned it a second ago, looking at the B-ball index stuff, his drives are even more efficient than Mitchell. He's got 18 drives a game at nearly a 113 offensive rating on drives. So there are a lot of ways. I, I, I think the takeaway for me is that if you can be really, really, really good in a lot of areas, that can either be the same or sometimes even better than just being great in this one area. And, and that one area happens to be the thing that we all think of when we think of like small guards or lead guards. But I think having this sort of diverse attack is a key thing. And, and with Mitchell specifically, I think it makes him one of the better offensive players in the league right now. Well, I think that that's the same for both players and teams in general like the best teams are the ones that have these secondary ideas for attacks these tertiary attacks this is why we love coaches like eric spolstra who seems to have counters for counters for counters and it just makes him so much harder to stop yeah okay so all this um i have one other thought i want to get to if you'll indulge me and it's and it's that derrick rose thought because i've seen a lot of people recently compare Rose. have you seen this people comparing rose and morant so much it's been enticing it's been a conversation that i'm like man this is this is an interesting question so rose obviously won mvp i don't think he was close to the best player in the league 
um, in terms of impact. He may have been close in terms of there weren't that many players that I would rather have in his 2011 season. I don't know what that number is off the top of my head, six, seven, eight, nine. So he was really good. But he won one of those MVPs where it's like LeBron and Wade cancel each other out. And I don't know about Kobe with the Lakers and Dwight Howard. I don't know if I want to give it to Dwight Howard because it's Dwight Howard and there's weird stuff going on down there. And oh, Nowitzki, I didn't pay attention to Nowitzki because he's a choker and a loser and a European softy. You guys forgot that. You guys forgot that that's all they said about Dirk Nowitzki before the 2011 playoffs. Nothing, to, nothing serious to see here. Move along. This team is a team of choke artists. Um, that didn't turn out that well, Man, obviously. The post-2007 discourse around Dirk was like yep. some of the worst stuff yep. in retrospect. Yeah. So, so that gets rewritten and erased, but... I mean, it's happening today. It happened. We just talked about it, how like, you know, Giannis was Giannis was a problem and not in the good way until last year when then Giannis became a problem in a good way. Then then he's Giannis and like a top 20 player of all time. So, OK, John Morant, Derek Rose. I hear them compared a lot. Here's my thought, Cody. Guys today can have very similar skill sets to guys in the past, even the recent past, like Rose, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it is. And they can have these similar skill sets. And you can say, well, Jaw does this a little bit better. Or Jaw is like Rose, but he also shoots more threes. Or um, his passing looks a little better. We've got spread pick and roll and his assist numbers are higher and yada, yada, yada. Uh, Memphis's offensive rating is better than Chicago's offensive rating. There's, there's ways you can kind of look at this and talk yourself into Morant being, I'm going to use this term very deliberately, being almost like a better version of Rose. And, and I think this is a trap because, because the same skills, you could almost do a thought experiment, the same skills that you have today, if you took them back 10 years ago, they might be more valuable 10 years ago. They might be more valuable on a certain team 10 or 15 years ago. Sometimes they're less valuable. And that's what's tricky is that when you compare guys that are from not too far away in the course of NBA history, but the league circumstance has changed radically. You have to be careful about being like, oh, well, this is just, a, this is a better, newer version of Derrick Rose. It may be in the skill set sense, but within the league, and I'm, by the way, I'm not taking a side right now. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but within the league, that doesn't necessarily mean that 11 Rose wasn't more impactful and more valuable than 22 Morant. Even if you look at 22 Morant on tape and you're like, whoa, he's got the same things plus a decent three-pointer or whatever. I don't even think... I think the trap here, the bigger trap, and being somebody that's in quite a few all-time drafts and seeing the way that people talk about old-time players and looking through stats and stuff, but you can look at the tape, but you can also just quickly scan basketball reference and be like... Or even like other... Like maybe even your your backpicks database and be like, wait a second. Jaws a higher load? Jaws a higher box creation? Jaws yep. scores more? Jaws is yep. higher is more efficient. Like, yep. it, is John Morant just straight up better than Derrick Rose? Yeah. And no, I, but that's the trap. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, all those things. So, so it, that's a great point because you can do it from like a skill set perspective, like what you're seeing on film or what you're seeing in highlights, and these things that pop, these kind of like salient points, crossover, penetration, first step, hang time at the rim. And then you go, oh, but Jaw also has this step back three. Come on, they didn't even have a step back three uh, t- 10 years ago. So Jaw ja also has this step back three. And it's like, the thing that matters is relative to the league, relative to other guards. And Rose with those skills, I would 
think it's not unreasonable. Again, I'm not interested in taking a huge stance on this because I think they're both probably in the same ballpark as players the way I would uh, line them up. But to your point, you would also then look at the stats and you'd be like, well, wait a second. Hold on. Jaws even more ahead in, you know, load, creation, scoring. We just go down the line and he just looks better. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's better because you got to remember different skill sets will create different impact in different environments. That is true whether you're talking about going back in time and it's true whether you're talking about changing your team or coaching or X's and O's within the 2022 season. So, okay, here's here's my question. So we, we have these stats. We have these highlights we're watching. We have so, some person that's like, well, I was there. I was watching. Derrick Rose is better. Is there is there some kind of way, Ben, is there some kind of website that allows you to maybe go back and, I don't know, watch a full game to try and put together this context? Does that exist right now? Are you, are you, you're talking about a site that maybe you could watch like videos on your phone or computer or television and then you would put that up and you'd be like show me these 20 Derrick Rose games from the 2011 season yes and you could you could pause them and rewind them yeah like how there's no way there, that would be a great invention it, that I, should, I would buy stock in that you'd probably spend money on that like I would pay like $20 a month for that service I I, I would love it for free all right, we're done with this bit. With- I, I, so, so what I did, I was, I was interested in this. Seriously, go if you ever hear somebody that's like, "Oh, I was there, I watched them." Go to YouTube, type in the year, type in the team. You will be shocked, shocked by how many high quality games you will be able to find. And so, you know, when I saw that James Harden was going to be out for the Sixers Heat game, I was like, "Well, I guess I'm going to go watch some Derrick Rose games from 2011 just to make sure." And Ben, the thing that really stood out to me. 10 years ago, this might as well have been 40 years ago, like the spacing of the Thibodeau Bulls in 2011. I'm shocked that Derrick Rose even had the offensive impact on his driving game that he was able to have in that ecosystem. Right. So, I mean, it's a great example. Radical changes, short period of time. Sometimes you can go 20 years and not have many changes. And sometimes in 10 years, you have these radical changes and you have very similar players athletically. And I think... They, it's, it's nice that it's a fair comparison because there's similarities between Jaw and Rose. But, of course, it's probably mostly fueled by just like fast break dunks from small guards that look incredible. These guys have ridiculous hops and they're up in the air forever and just these beautiful highlights. get You know, you throw a lob back to your point guard in transition and he dunks on someone's head. Um, Marcus Smart the other night is still... We're all still recovering from that left-handed transition dunk that jaw had but the le- the environment's so different the spacing is different the shooting is different and again that might make it worse in terms of impact but it also might make it much better that that's his skill set may have been super rare and therefore super valuable and in his case he was like playing on a defensive team he's playing on a team where they're they're like you know what lineup we should run out here cody i would enjoy myself some taj gibson and omer ashik uh, in the front court that's my that's my front court and if you're thinking don't worry we've got kyle corver coming for shooting uh, let me just throw ronnie brewer out there as well so we only have one, one shooter we are good to go with one shooter so i i have a stat about this that's com- comparatively to show you the sorts of teams that John Morant and Derrick Rose played on. So of the Bulls' top seven players by minutes per game in 2011, <laughs> only two of them shot over 0.3 threes per game. One of them was Derrick Rose. 
So that means most of the players that Derrick Rose is playing with shot fewer than 0.3 threes per game. Okay, it was Derrick Rose and Luol Deng, all right? Luol Deng's not really known as a sniper. Kyle Korver wasn't even the top seven players in the rotation at that point. This year, of the top, of the Grizzlies' top seven players, only one is shooting fewer than three and a half threes per game, and it's Steven Adams. Yeah, well, he's got to be in there to pick up all the offensive rebounds. You, <laughs> you, need, you need one guy to fetch the balls while you have shooting practice. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Like... I get that they didn't necessarily have the shooting talent. They actually had, like, Keith Bogans could shoot some threes. Kyle Culver could obviously shoot some threes. But even in the way they set up offenses, like, at one point, there was this, uh, I don't know, it was a pick and roll, or like an isolation. I think Derrick Rose had a high pick and roll, actually, a high screen and roll. And he's attacking on the left side. And the Bulls are stationing one player on the left side, and it's Taj Gibson. They put Taj Gibson in the corner, okay? In, in in the corner, but is he even is he even spotting up behind the line? Yeah, he was, but he didn't shoot threes. So like, what are you doing over there? And you know who's on the other side, the other corner, Kyle Korver, right? So Louis Scola, who's defending Gibson, is just like, all right, I'm just gonna stand in the paint and wait for Derrick Rose, and it completely shuts off any driving light ranges. Like you could have just been like, hey, Kyle Korver, be on this side, space the ball out a little bit better, be on the strong side with Derrick Rose instead of Taj Gibson. I don't. It, it blows my mind how, like, spacing is a concept for so many teams and coaches has just, like, in the last few years is this revolutionary idea. Yeah. A lot has changed in the last 10 seasons. Um, do we have any other topics we want to hit? To? I don't even know how long we've been talking. We've just Mitchell, Rose, Morant, unassisted field goal numbers. I mean, I'm, I'm basically, it's like an opium trip. This is just... <laughs> That, that's one way you could say it. Like, out, of, out of all of the ways one could say it, that is one way you can say it. Seems like the most appropriate. Do we, do, do we have other topics we want to talk about? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. I think, I think we're going to have to table this top offensive players conversation. We're going to have to come back to that. That's gonna, now, that we've, now that we've teased Mitchell for a month and a half, that's going to be our next big venture to get to. And... Um, I mean, I, I need to see more. I need to see more games in Philadelphia and Brooklyn before I talk about those teams. And so, I, there's nothing more to. I mean, we've talked about all possible basketball topics that one could talk about. Yeah, all of them. That's it. For the record, I'm, I'll go on record. Since you didn't want to go on record, I do think. I think if you swapped them, I think Derrick Rose is probably a better player than John Morant. Not probably. I think Derrick Rose is a better offensive player than John Morant right now. Okay. Oh. All right. Oh. That's fair. That's fair. He was. He was very good. He, he was very good. And then it ended so quickly. Yeah. So talking about that, do you want to talk about championship windows? No, no. Let's 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 leave it for another episode. Okay. Um, if you want to support this show, head on over to Patreon.com/slash/ThinkingBasketball. We actually might have some watch-along footage from that Bulls game we were alluding to earlier. We we checked out a little Bulls. Bulls Spurs from 2011 with Derrick Rose bringing it home in the fourth quarter for Chicago. We also have a bunch of other features. We just did our monthly Patreon Q&A. You can access that. We have a Discord community. Some of the stats we cite during the show are available that update daily on the website, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Check that out. Uh, Cody, that's it. Anything else we need to say before we get out the door? You could also go back and still watch that 75 watch along we did that's still there 75 watch along people are still talking about that it'll be yeah. there forever <laughs> go check it out 
Well, I can't promise it'll be there forever. I do have the delete option, which I can exercise if, if, if someone finds out that I said something completely inappropriate. At the beginning, I had a long rant, but I had to edit that out. That was... Cody's like, you can't, that's not, you can't have that on there. You, you got to take that out. So I just cut this? it. Why are you saying Yeah, this? no, I had, I had to take it out. Had, it had to be removed. Um, that is it. Thanks as always for listening all the way to the end of the show. And of course, I hope you are having a great day. 